And good morning once again. Can I have you all turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5. All right, listen. Unless a meteor hits the building, we will finish John 5 today. Now, we've been studying the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. has gotten as far as John 5, where the Jewish leaders have already put Jesus on trial. Not literally, that would happen later when they turn him over to Pilate. But right now, they've already judged him guilty. They have rejected him as Messiah. And what they're really doing is they're trying to build a case against him to turn public opinion against the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's got a pretty healthy following, and they are envious of that, the Jewish leadership. So um, they are trying to find anything they can accuse him with. And uh, so this trial, quote-unquote, um, is, is on. And uh, the first accusation is that Jesus is a lawbreaker because he healed a man of all things. Wow, healed a man. <laughs> who have been lame for 38 years on the Sabbath. That makes him an evil lawbreaker in their mind. And also he's a blasphemer because he had the audacity to say that God was his father, thus making himself equal with God. So Jesus goes along with this kind of charade, and we'll see why at the end. But uh, in verses 19 to 29, the Lord testifies in his own defense, you might say. By defending his claim of equality with the Father based on five evidences or truths, which we have studied in detail, the first one being that God is his Father. In Jewish culture, the Son was always equal with the Father. So that's a blasphemy in their minds that he would claim that. Uh, also, though, that um, Jesus claimed uh, equality with the Father because he was doing the same miraculous works the Father was doing. Also, that the Father had given him power over life and death. And that the Father had given him authority to judge the world someday. But also that the Father wanted the Son to have as much honor as he himself had. Now, all of these, and if you weren't here for these, you can go online, listen to the back studies. Because you'll see, as we study each of these in detail, that uh, they become powerful and irrefutable facts that substantiate Jesus' claim of divinity and equality with his Father. Now... After testifying in his own defense, uh, the Lord defending himself as a defense attorney, can't get a better attorney for the defense than Jesus, uh, read 1 John chapter 2, he's our defense attorney as well. But, uh, you know, going along with this whole charade, uh, he now calls to the witness stand for witnesses who will corroborate and substantiate his testimony of himself. Now, Here's the thing, Jewish law, Deuteronomy 19.15 said, God only required two at the most three witnesses to settle a matter in court and all, but Jesus presents four. And so we have been looking at these. First of all, he calls to the witness stand, John the Baptist, to give testimony. Then he calls on the miraculous works he's doing to testify of who he is. Thirdly, we saw this last week, uh, he calls on the testimony of the Father uh, that uh, was had been given uh, to you know of him or to him uh, during his ministry. Father claiming that he is my son, uh, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, right? And uh, then this morning we want to finish looking at these four witnesses by uh, looking at the fourth 
witness. And that is the testimony of the scriptures. Verse 39, Jesus said to these religious men, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they, listen, which testify of me. Now, when Jesus says the scriptures, that's a reference to our Old Testament, because at that point, the New Testament had not been written. Of course, the Jews don't call it their Old Testament like we do. They call it their Holy Scriptures, okay? what they, The name they use is Tanakh. And Tanakh is an acronym uh, of, uh, of the first Hebrew letter of each of the three main divisions of their Scriptures. T for Torah represents teaching, also known as the first five books of Moses, the law. The N is Nevi'im, stands for the prophets, writings of the prophets. And then the Ketravim stands for the K, for writings, just in general now. So you got the poetic books and you got the historical books. But uh, Hebrew has no vowel points, so they add them in later. But uh, the word is T-N-K-Tanakh, which represents their holy scriptures. Now, Jesus said you search the scriptures. Uh, all the time was the implication, right? You have to understand something that, and this goes back into their history. The southern kingdom of Judah was better than the northern kingdom of Israel. They were taken away captive by the Assyrians in roughly 722 B.C. Judah hung out another 115 years or so and because uh, they had some good kings and some periods of revival. But um, they got progressively worse as well, and God kept warning them that if they didn't repent and get right with him, they were gonna, he was going to bring the Babylonians uh, to take them captive away like the northern kingdom was taken captive away. Well, they didn't listen. They didn't repent. And so in 606 B.C., the Babylonians came, and uh, the first deportation took place. That's when Daniel and his three buddies were taken back to Babylon. Uh, there was a vassal king put in charge by uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, that lasted for, okay for a while, but then the vassal became, uh, you know, kind of disgruntled and began to uh, uh, snub the king of, of Babylon and not really obey him. So the king brought his armies again, 598, I believe, uh, was a second deportation, and uh, they put another vassal king in power, and that didn't work out so well. So in 586, Nebuchadnezzar had a belly full of the whole deal, brings his full army, and he wipes out Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. Not one stone was left. Uh, it, just, it was just reduced to a, a pile of rubble. Took the remaining Jews uh, back to Babylon uh, in 586. The captivity would last 70 years total. That was prophesied in Scripture starting from 606 B.C. Then 536, it ended. But uh, at this point, 586, there were still 50 years left uh, to, uh, for the captivity. Well, there are 700 miles now uh, away from Jerusalem, which was in rubbles anyways. And, of course, the temple was gone. And so the religious leaders, especially the chief, the priests and the Levites and so on, couldn't practice their ceremonial faith uh, by, you know, temple rituals and sacrifices and all of that. So what they did was they decided they would give all their time and energy to the study of the scriptures. And so that's when the synagogue started. Okay, because there was no temple worship. That's when I think the Pharisees came into being. These men who were ultra-conservative, who made it a point to study uh, the minutia of the law down to its smallest detail, right? And so this was all started during this period 
When Israel couldn't go to temple and couldn't exercise the sacrimonial faith that they had known for so many centuries, and now they were just going to turn in and study the Bible, uh, their scriptures, just nonstop. Nothing wrong with that except the problem was, and historians have pointed this out, the Bible became, their scriptures became kind of an idol. Is that possible? Yeah. If you don't let the scriptures point you to the one that they're written about, yes. I mean, there are liberal scholars and theologians that study the Bible their entire lives and don't know the Lord. Because for them, somehow studying the Bible uh, has some kind of uh, merit on its own. These guys, the Pharisee, uh, the um, well, Pharisees, I'm sure, uh, and the Levites and the priests back then, uh, they studied the Bible over and over again. And just like Jesus, you search the scriptures constantly. For in them you think you have eternal life. It's they that testify of me, but you won't come to me to give you this life. And that was the problem. I mean, studying the Bible is important, but not as an end in itself or a form of worship. You have to listen to what God is saying and allow the scriptures to point you to the one that he sent. And that's Jesus, and he said, the scriptures testify of me. So blind. Well, in Psalm 40, verse 7, which was also quoted in Hebrews 10, verse 7, uh, Jesus speaking in Psalm 40, verse 7, he said, the scroll of the book, it is written of me. He was talking about the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. Everything in there was written of me, Right? I mean, guys, the entire Bible is the story of redemption. And the entire story of redemption is about one person, Jesus Christ. Remember that before he became Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was a rabbi extraordinaire. He was a brilliant scholar and expert in the Jewish scriptures. After his conversion, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9... And once the Holy Spirit had opened Paul's eyes to see Jesus pretty much in every page, principle, and prophecy, well, he was able to go out immediately and preach that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Acts 9, verse 20. Now, skeptics would object. I've heard these objections. They would say, well, yes, but how could Paul be sure? Okay that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, Christian, how can you be sure? Well, that's a valid question, okay? I mean, we Christians are basing our lives and our eternities on the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. How can we be sure he is who he claimed to be? Well, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of things we could look at. But one of the greatest proofs in the Bible uh, that Jesus is who he claimed to be is prophecy. In fact, in Revelation 19.10, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You want to testify of Christ? You want to do it from the scriptures? Then just got to get into the prophecies because uh, they uh, bear witness of who he is. Prophecy, guys, is one of the most powerful and irrefutable proofs that we have. That Jesus is who he claimed to be, the one who we, whom we believe him to be, God in human form, the Savior and Messiah of the world. In his second epistle, which you don't have to turn there, Peter mentioned how he saw 
with his own eyes a preview of Christ's second coming glory when he was up in the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord and, and James and John. You remember that, of course, we studied that on Wednesday night. And, uh, but he goes on to say, look, I, I saw it with my own eye. We didn't uh, follow cunningly devised fables. We didn't make this stuff up. I was an eyewitness. I saw uh, the Lord radiate like the sun in his second coming glory. But he went on to say, but we have the prophetic word confirmed. And the literal translation is, we have more, we have more sure the, the prophetic word. Guys, Peter is telling us that more reliable than the eyewitness testimony of man is the prophetic word of God. God said that he was going to tell us things in his word before they happened. Because he said, only I know the end from the beginning. Okay? Only I know what's going to happen in the future. I'm not guessing. All right? We know God is spirit. He's outside of time. Time is a dimension that is subject to mass and gravity and velocity. So uh, only things with mass are, are bound by time. God is a spirit. He's outside of time. So he sees everything as if it's going on right now. He's in the eternal present tense, okay? And God said, I'm going to tell you things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you know, you know that A, I'm God, and B, this is my word. Because only I know what's coming. In fact, God said, if any prophet arises among you and claims to be speaking for me and tells you anything, prophets, anything doesn't come to pass, there are false prophets, stone them. Because I'm not guessing. I know what's coming in the future. And God told us many things in his word about the Christ. Uh, most of the prophecies, I think, in the Old Testament deal with Jesus in some way, shape, or form. But for almost the entire 4,000 years of Old Testament history, okay, prophets had been foretelling of Messiah's coming. We know that in Jude, verses 14 and 15, he talks about the prophet Enoch, who was the seventh generation from Adam. So he was right at the beginning there. And Enoch prophesied, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon the earth. Of course, Job, the oldest book of the Bible, dating back about 2500 B.C., in chapter 19, verse 25, Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. And he's coming back and is going to stand on the earth physically. And these eyes of mine are going to see him one day. Not in others' eyes. I'm going to see him with these eyes, which speaks of resurrection, of course. So way back, God had revealed to his people that you know, there was, a, and, and where did they get this? Who started all this messianic talk? God the Father did in the Garden of Eden when man blew it. Remember Genesis 3.15? God promised, I'm going to send a redeemer through this. He's going to be the seed of the woman. What the women don't have, the seed the man does. That was a, a, a way of saying he'd be virgin born. I'm going to send you a virgin born savior. Adam, you messed up. I'm going to send somebody. Let's call him as Paul did the last Adam. And when he comes, he's going to make right everything that Adam messed up in the Garden of Eden. So 
God the Father began that whole thing right at the very beginning. No sooner did man fall and was pronouncing, God was pronouncing the curse, he went on to say, but look, there's hope. I'm going to send a Redeemer. And he is going to make everything right. And so on. But guys, as we look at the prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus' first coming, I mean, hundreds of details were given about his birth, his life, his death, and, and his resurrection. So to quote Peter again, when it comes to the prophecies in God's word, a person would be wise to heed what God has said, especially when it comes to the prophecies of Jesus' second coming, because we believe, based on the prophecies, that event is going to be happening uh, sooner than many think. And therefore, you ought to read these prophecies, and you ought to get your life right with God by accepting His Son, and then beginning to live your life in service to the Lord. Look, as we study the prophecies in the Bible concerning Jesus' uh, first coming, we see there are over 300, about 333 prophecies dealing with His first coming, and uh, about 500 that deal with the second coming. This morning, I just want to look at a few of these. I mean, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because um, we have done studies where we have focused on quite a few prophecies. But look, this morning I'd like to just look at a few of these prophecies that predicted Jesus' first coming. And guys, by the way, these are no means vague or ambiguous. They are pretty clear and specific. Uh, let me just start by saying this. In 2 Samuel 17, you have to turn to these because we don't have time. But in 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, 7, I should say, 2 Samuel 7, uh, it tells us that Messiah would be a descendant of King David. Now, guys, that eliminates every other family on the face of the earth. In Micah 5, 2, it tells us that he would be born in a little village known as Bethlehem, but in the county of Ephrathah, because there was another Bethlehem up in the Galilee, and the Bethlehem in the county of Ephrathah was the one in Judah, Judea, and that's the one where the Messiah would be born, we are told. And guys, that eliminates every other place in the world. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, it tells us that Messiah would be born sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. That happened in 70 A.D. And so uh, Messiah had to be born before 70 A.D. Any so-called Messiah claiming to be the Messiah who was born after that is a false Messiah according to prophecy. Okay, But uh, listen, we, it's amazing that, that God tells us this because that eliminates every other time in the history of the world. You see how God is becoming more and more specific? You know, you have a lot of these so-called psychics and things. The Edgar Casey's and the Gene Dixons, I think they're, I think they're right about 7 or 8% of the time, you know? And, and I could guess and probably, you know, hit that number because that's, that's what they're doing, okay? Um, but God isn't afraid to be specific. You know, it's as specific as the Lord is being with these prophecies. If Jesus didn't fulfill just one, I mean, very specific, then he would be written off and we would say, well, the Bible's not true. Or Jesus can't be the Messiah because he, he wasn't born in Bethlehem. Years ago, I was uh, at a, a car dealership and uh, they had the, was in the, by the Bay Area where they were working on the cars and they had a, uh, uh, calendar on the wall 
Somebody must have been a Christian had a calendar. And it had a picture of Jerusalem on the calendar. And underneath the caption said, The city where our Lord was born. Oops. Oops. No, he wasn't born in Bethlehem. In Jerusalem, he was born in Bethlehem. Okay? But let me just stop and say this. Skeptics believe that Jesus simply read these prophecies and then went about fulfilling them so he could claim to be the Messiah. Look, he, he might have been able to do that with a few, but it's very hard with others. How do you get Judas to betray for exactly 30 pieces of silver as was prophesied? How do you get the Romans to cast lot for your cloak when they were dividing the garment, but not the cloak which was prophesied? They're going to cast lots for my garments, but not destroy his cloak. And with others, guys, it would be absolutely impossible. Like we just explained, uh, for example, Jesus fulfilled the first three prophecies we talked about, 2 Samuel, Micah, and Daniel, by simply being born. He didn't do anything. Look, there are, as I said, over 300 prophecies of his first coming in the Old Testament. I'll just give you a few of these. I won't even get into them very much. But in Genesis 3.15... And in Isaiah 7, 14, it prophesied that the Messiah would be virgin-born. We just talked about that. And that they were going to call his name Emmanuel, which is a title, a description. His name is Jesus, but, but that would be a, a surname, okay? Emmanuel means God with us, indicating this Messiah, whoever he was going to be, wouldn't be a mere man. He would be God in human form. Isaiah 53 tells us that he would lead a hard life, that he would be a man acquainted with grief and suffering, as Jesus was. Psalm 41, verse 9 says that someone close to him, a dear and trusted friend, would betray him. Zechariah 11, verses 11 to 13 tells us how much he would be betrayed for, 30 pieces of silver, and that his betrayer would throw the money down on the temple floor and that it would be used to buy a potter's field. That's exactly what happened. Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and he, he had a change of heart about it, went back, tried to return the money. Chief priest said, we don't want it. And so he threw it on the floor of the temple, went out and hung himself, and they said, well, what are we supposed to do? We can't put it back in the treasury. It's blood money. Well, look, we always have poor people that die, and there's no place to bury them. Let's use the money and buy Potter's Field, a place where poor people can be buried. And so that's what they did. All prophesied. Isaiah 50 and Chapter 52, prophesy of the savage beating that he would receive at the hands of his captors, the vicious scourging, and even the ripping out of his beard that many Christians don't realize happened, but you go into the Old Testament and read the prophecies, yes. In fact, he was so disfigured from that that Isaiah prophesied he was no longer recognizable as a man. Psalm 22 describes more vividly and graphically than the New Testament, the way he would die, which would be crucifixion. And that was prophesied about 900 years before the Persians even invented crucifixion. Oh, the Romans took it to an art form. The Persians actually invented it. That was 900 years before anybody even heard of crucifixion. And then Psalm 16 and other passages speak of his resurrection. There are many other prophecies that we could look at that give detailed aspects of Jesus' life and earthly ministry. 
as I said, over 300 uh, in all that deal with just his first coming alone, not to mention the 500 that deal with his second coming, 500 prophecies. Guys, if all these prophecies, and I was, we kind of studied some of this on Wednesday night, and so I, I made the point to say, look, if, if all the prophecies of his first coming and many prophecies concerning his second coming have all been fulfilled with flawless accuracy, does anybody want to say, well, but I don't really think these other prophecies are, you know, people bury their head in the sand, right? Uh, you show them, you know, all these prophecies have been fulfilled. Well, yeah, but and so you know, he's coming back again. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to judge those folks that don't want anything to do with him. Oh, well, I don't really believe that. You want to go there? You really want to go there? You're betting your eternity that after fulfilling hundreds of prophecies with flawless accuracy, the remaining ones are not going to be fulfilled because you don't want to deal with the reality of what's coming? You can bury your head in the sand if you want to. It's like, you know, you're walking on a railroad track and suddenly you see a train in the distance coming. You could bow your head and close your eyes. It's not going to stop it from hitting you. And that's how, what people do today. They want to just pretend that, you know, well, yeah, but no, I don't believe it's going to happen like that. Well, you'll find out. But back in John 5, so Jesus told these guys, yeah, you search the scriptures constantly. For in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. Yet, verse 40, you are not willing to come to me that I may give you this life. Again, guys, it's interesting how a person can study the Bible sometimes their entire lives, as I said, like liberal theologians and scholars, and still not comprehend the core message that the Bible teaches. That man is hopelessly lost, and apart from Christ can do nothing good in the eyes of God, especially in the way of earning his salvation or her salvation. Now, Paul talked about these religious people. In uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 7, he said, They're always learning, yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that sad? Now, why is that? How could a person keep studying and studying and studying the Bible and never get saved? Because of the hardness of their hearts. Just like these uh, Jewish scholars. And what was the problem with them, as we talked about last week? The reason for their blindness was their pride, their pride. Pride blinds a person to God's truth. Spiritual, religious pride is what I'm talking about. The Jews, and especially their leaders, were the epitome of religious people, guys. They were the epitome of religious people who believed that by keeping the law of Moses and by doing good works, giving alms to the poor, praying, fasting, etc., they believed that these things would earn them eternal life. Turn to Romans 10. Let me read to you the first four verses of Romans 10 out of the NLT 2nd edition. Listen to what Paul said. He said, Romans 10 verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Paul had a real heart for his countrymen. I know what enthusiasm they have for God. Other translations say zeal. 
But it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. In other words, they are saved. And Paul is saying, look, the Jewish people have a real enthusiasm for God, a real zeal. And uh, many of them devote their entire lives to studying the scriptures. I was one of them, Paul said. He was a Pharisee at one point. But I was ignorant. I had a zeal for God. I had a passion for God. But it wasn't rooted in truth. You know, you can be zealous for God and be wrong in how you approach God. That's what Paul is saying. The Jews thought that by doing certain things, keeping the law and, and, and rituals and ceremonies and, and new moons and Sabbaths, that by doing all these in sacrifices, if I missed that one, uh, by doing all of these things, they were earning a place in heaven. I thought that when I was a Roman Catholic. I went to Mass and lit the candles and prayed the rosary. And when I was in grade school, we'd do laps around the chapel at lunchtime after we ate, doing the Stations of the Cross. You gotta get, if you get three or four, and boy, that's, you know, you really earn some points with God, right? So that was how we thought. And when I started reading the Bible, I realized that was all wrong. Like the Jewish people were wrong. It wasn't religion that was going to get me saved. It was a relationship with Christ by faith. And guys, that's exactly what Jesus is accusing these religious leaders of being guilty of and why they refused to come to him for eternal life. Their religious zeal, motivated by pride and self-righteousness, had, listen, inoculated them to the true righteousness that could only be theirs through the blood of Jesus Christ and their faith in him. That's the danger of religion. It inoculates people. It's, you'd be better off to be a flat-out, beer-drinking, motorcycle-riding, leather-wearing, hard-nose than to be one of these people that goes to church and when you talk about the Lord to them, oh, isn't that nice? I'm so glad you found what works for you. Oh, I just want to throw up. <laughs> Give me a guy that says, hey, I don't want to know about God. I don't love God. Okay, fine, I can deal with that. You're honest, okay? You're honest, all right? Because this guy's under no illusion he's going to heaven, whereas a lot of religious people are. You can reach with that. He's, he's what the Bible calls cold. Of course, you got those who are hot. They're on fire, Christians. It's the lukewarm ones that are the problem, right? You know who they are? They're not lukewarm Christians. They're religious unbelievers. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You are very close to the kingdom of God. That's the problem with a lot of religious people. They're close, but they never enter in. Because their religion makes them think they're right with God when they're not. The plain truth about these guys, the Pharisees and all these religious guys, these men refused to come to Christ for eternal life because, listen, they thought they were righteous enough to earn it on their own. At one point, Saul of Tarsus believed this as well until the Holy Spirit opened his eyes and he received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He recounts his pre, and listen, post-conversion mindset 
on the subject. And I won't have you read it or turn to it. You can write it down, Philippians 3, verses 4 to 9. Because Paul, at one point, was in the same camp as the rest of the zealous Jews for Judaism. He thought by keeping all the... And he was raised in, a, uh, in the home of a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee. When he got old enough, he became a Pharisee. And they were the ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews. They really poured themselves into the scriptures and trying to keep the law by the... They even tithed from their herb gardens. That's how zealous they were. And Paul said, all my life I was trying to earn righteousness by my religious works. He said, until I, I, I came to realize, God opened his eyes, that all of those things that I was involved in, they were, not, they were trash, they were rubbish. They couldn't earn me anything in the way of pleasing God or getting into heaven. It wasn't until I abandoned all of that self-effort and I just embraced Christ by faith that I was made righteous because of his righteousness. We don't get to heaven by our righteousness. We get to heaven by Christ's righteousness. When you receive him, the Holy Spirit places you in the body of Christ. Now, whole theme of Ephesians, you're in Christ. And you get into heaven because of what Jesus did, not because of what you and I do. God even said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, Anybody who wraps themselves in their own self-righteousness, rooted in religion, ceremonies, sacrifice, that whole deal? Well, their so-called self-righteousness, which they've clothed themselves in, in the eyes of God, the Bible says, are nothing but filthy, defiled rags. You must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, his righteous robes. Now, in John 5, verse 41, we read, Jesus goes on, I do not receive honor from men. Now, of course, within the context of the whole passage, it takes us back to something the Lord Jesus had said earlier in this passage, and that was that the only testimony he needed and the only honor he wanted was the testimony of and the honor from the Father. Remember in John 22, I'll read it, 22, I'm sorry, John 2, verses 23 to 25. He was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. It says, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Well, be careful. They believed he was a powerful prophet and a miracle worker. It doesn't mean they believed that he was the Son of God, Messiah, and they gave their hearts to him. There's a lot of unbelievers. I was one of them in the Catholic Church. Who, I wasn't an atheist. I believed uh, in God and in Jesus Christ. I just wasn't saved. All right? So just don't, don't let that throw you that well, they believed in him. And because it's on to say, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. In other words, the Greek is he didn't believe in them, basically, because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was basically in the heart of man. The Lord Jesus knew the heart. He knew the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes. He knew that they had all this religion going on, but they didn't really love God. They loved themselves. They loved the honor they received from men. They loved the chief seats in the synagogues. They loved all that prestige and earthly honor from people. 
But Jesus knew their heart. Verse 42, But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Now you can read 1 John 4, verses 12 to 16, that go along with this. And you know, John wrote the Gospel of John, but then when he wrote 1 John, he amplified a lot of the things that Jesus said and gave us kind of an expanded understanding of what, you know, going on. When Jesus said, you don't have the love of, you don't have the love of God in you, he was basically saying, if you did love God, you would have loved the one he sent. I mean, no true Christian who has God in their hearts, and of course a true Christian does. All true Christians love the Son, right? You're never going to find a true Christian who says, well, I love God the Father, but I don't really care about Jesus. I don't really believe Him. Well, a Jehovah's Witness might say that. A Mormon might say that. But not a true Christian, Okay. And how do we know if God's abiding in our, our hearts? Well, do we love the brethren, John says? Do we love God to the point where we love the one he has sent? That's how you abide in God's love, just by loving Jesus and uh, obeying what he has said and so on. And he was saying to these Pharisees and these, these chief priests and scribes, if you guys really love God the way you claim to, you would have loved the one he sent. The fact that you've rejected me proves you don't have the love of the Father in you. Okay. The Lord Jesus knew that any respect from these Jewish leaders was worthless because they did not have the love of God in their hearts. One author put it this way, summing up verse 42, man's failure to receive the Son of God is here traced back to its cause. These men did not have the love of God in them, that is, they loved themselves rather than God. If they had loved God, they would have received the one whom God had sent. By their rejection of the Lord Jesus, they showed their utter lack of love for the Father. End quote. Verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now, we talked about this last week. How that... Jesus came into the world as light. And of course, a lot of that re represented the truth of God. Okay, God's revelation. Of course, the most powerful revelation was the incarnation. Okay, where God became man and actually dwelt among us. All right. But the idea is that um, Jesus went around presenting God's truth. Those that had an open heart, they would get more truth. Until they were saved. Okay. Those that didn't have an open heart, those were hard-hearted like these religious men. Well, at one point Jesus said, you know, a person who lives up to the light they have will get more light. A person who doesn't live up to the light they have, the truth of God, well, that little light that they have will be taken from them and they will only have darkness. In other words, if you don't want the truth, God's not going to force it down your throat. If you don't want the truth, that's fine, but understand this. If you don't want the truth, then you're not worthy of the truth. And at one point, the Lord, he uh, withdraws the offer. And you can't even understand even a little bit of what is all about, what, what God is all about and, and all of that, right? Now, Jesus talks about someone who is coming. He says, look, I have come in the Father's name. I'm the Messiah. You've rejected me. Another will come in his own name, claiming to be Messiah. Him you're going to receive. Who's he talking about? Antichrist. Antichrist. 
And doesn't Paul talk about this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 11, that those folks who rejected the love of the truth, that they might be saved, the gospel, they rejected it. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And he's talking about the Antichrist, who will come doing lying signs and wonders, miracles that will be designed to deceive. Why? Because people rejected the truth. God will never let a person get deceived by the devil if they love his word and are studying the word and staying in the word and so on. They'll, they'll walk in the light of God's truth. It's when they stray from the word of God. That's when the devil can get in there. And the ultimate example, of course, is those who are unbelievers who reject the truth. Um, they are really opening themselves up for the devil's lies. And the Jewish people lead that list. I'm talking about a lot of Jews are secular, atheists, agnostics. But there are some who are very zealous for God still. They're called observant Jews. They observe the law of Moses as best they can. Temple's gone, priesthood's gone, I understand that. But they're out there. In fact, I ran into one of them this summer when we were at a little kiddie park with my family and my granddaughter. And uh, they were inside some store shopping as they usually are. And uh, I was sitting out uh, at a little table outside, you know, having a Coke or something, whatever I was doing. And I'm reading the news off my phone. And all of a sudden, I see this group of uh, young people. I, they, they were boys, maybe 12 to 15, okay? I knew they were Jewish because they were all wearing yarmulkes, and they had Jewish. It was like a summer camp. They all had the same T-shirt on. You, know, you could tell it was Hebrew writing in the front. And there were some older gentlemen. One looked like he was a rabbi, uh, you know, walking alongside them. I look up, and I just saw them coming. And as I as they walked past me, I looked on the back of their shirt, and it said, we want Mashiach now. Mashiach means Messiah. I'm like, man, I would have loved to talk to them, you know, cause they, they, but they were gone. All right, I looked down on my phone. A couple of minutes passes. Sure enough, here comes the leader back my way. I said, sir, 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 come here, come here. It was a very nice man, came right over. I said, look, I, I noticed your T-shirt. I, I noticed it says you want Messiah now. Well, I'm looking for the Messiah, okay? But I, I wanted to ask you, what signs are you looking for that will determine a person is the Messiah when he comes? Here's what he told me. Again, very nice fellow. And I asked him, why don't you believe Jesus is your Messiah? Because he didn't do these things that I'm going to share with you. Okay, Here, here's number one. We know that Messiah, we're going to know Messiah because he will bring peace. Number two, he will draw Jews back to Israel. And number three, he is going to rebuild the temple and start the sacrifices again. Because I asked him, I, his name was Haim. I said, Haim, I said, you know, you're an observant Jew. And of course, your Bible, your scriptures say, God speaking, I have given you the sacrifice, the blood upon the altar to make atonement for the soul. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. But you have no blood sacrifices. You have no temple. You have no priesthood. How are your sins dealt with? Well, when Messiah comes, he's going to rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrifices. Then we're going to have to do extra sacrifices to make up for all the time we didn't do the sacrifices. Pray for these folks. Because that is everything on the list the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel, Daniel 9, which will allow them, no doubt, to rebuild their temple. Sacrifices, he has to because 
three and a half years later, he walks into that rebuilt temple and stops the sacrifices, puts his image in the Holy of Holies, demands to be worshipped as God. And when the Jews believe Messiah has come and he's in Jerusalem, they're already going back to Israel because of the persecution around the world. But when they believe Messiah has finally come, they're going to flock to Israel. So all of this is what the Antichrist is going to do. Jesus said, you didn't receive me, the true Messiah. Another will come in his own name. Him you will receive. Well, at least for a time. Until he declares himself to be God and unleashes a wave of persecution against the Jewish people they have never seen in their existence. Back to John as we wrap it up. Verse 44. Jesus said to these men, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Guys, everything about the Pharisees was designed to get honor from men. Everything from the way they dressed with the giant phylacteries hanging off their heads to the way they stood in the street corners and prayed loud, ostentatious prayers, to the way they gave money to God, they sounded the trumpet, even to where they sat at religious banquets and in the synagogues, in the chief seats. Everything was designed for them to get honor from people, and especially from one another. They loved that. This caused Jesus at one point to say to these men, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. You know, I can't read those words. They come out of Luke 16, 15. I can't ever read that verse without thinking about the Oscars. Or something like that. I never watched the Oscars, so you know. And I would never watch it because it would sicken me to watch a bunch of people who are living so contrary to God give themselves awards, the very thing Jesus was coming down on these religious people for doing. That, that, that's the problem. But the Pharisees, Jesus said, you know your big problem? You compare yourselves with others to determine how righteous you are. That's always a problem. Because we have said this many times. I can always find somebody a little deeper in the mud than me to stand next to and say, well, I'm not perfect, but look at this guy. Look at him. Or look at her. Well, I'm better than that, that person, so I must be righteous. When they're not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. He was perfect. Stand next to Jesus, yeah, you look. Not so good, right? And that's the idea. Because Jesus is going to say in John 16, the only righteousness God will accept up into heaven is the righteousness of Christ, which is sinless perfection, which none of us can attain to. So how do we get there? We've got to be in Christ. That happens through faith. Through faith. All right, verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Oh, they love Moses. They just adored Moses, okay? Moses was their guy. Moses was going to keep them from hell because they always followed what Moses said, right? Jesus said, I got news for you. Moses is going to be your accuser on the day of judgment, not your Savior. Verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote about me, Jesus said. Well, where did Moses write about Jesus? Many places. 
I'm talking about the first five books, the books of Moses, right? Uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, many places. I'll just give you a few, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. God said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, um, he, from your brethren, uh, him you shall hear. That was a prophecy of Messiah. I'm going to raise up another prophet like Moses. Moses was a deliverer. He, this new prophet, Messiah, is going to deliver you not from the bondage of Egypt, from the bondage of sin and death. Of course, in Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9, God instructed the people who were murmuring against him, and God sent the fiery serpents into the camp of Israel to bite the people. It was a judgment on them. And, and they cried out to Moses, and Moses cried out to the Lord, and God said, okay, make a brass serpent and put it on a pole, erect it in the middle of the camp. Anyone who was bitten by one of these fiery serpents, if they look upon the serpent, the brass serpent, on the pole, by faith, they'll be healed. Jesus actually said in John 3, verses 14 and 15, that was me. That spoke of me. Okay? Of course, the serpent represented sin on the cross. Jesus became sin for us. The pole represented, if I be lifted up from the earth, I shall draw all people to myself, he would go on to say. Of course, in Numbers 20, verses 8 to 12, we see the rock that uh, rolled with Israel throughout the wilderness, all right? And everywhere they set up camp, there was that rock. And they would, uh, they would speak to it and it would give forth water. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that rock was Christ. And you can read Leviticus chapters 1 to 7. All seven of those sacrifices, they all pointed clearly to Jesus Christ. John Phillips, who is a great commentator, he said with regard to this, and I quote, the writings of Moses were full of types that depicted Christ. The Ark of Noah, the offering of Isaac, the ladder of Jacob's dream, the story of Joseph, the Passover lamb, the manna from heaven, the rock that brought forth water in the wilderness, the serpent on the pole, to mention just a few. The writings of Moses contained one outstanding messianic promise, prophecy that every Jew knew by heart, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. We just quoted it. He goes on to say, Jesus could well say, Moses wrote of me. He wrote of him repeatedly. But these people discounted all these types and prophecies of Christ. The indictment was clear, the consequence inevitable. To disbelieve the writings of Moses was to make any genuine faith in Christ impossible. Their case was hopeless if Moses, the great intercessor of the Old Testament, became their great accuser. Their doom was sealed. All right, we're done. But let me just say this as we wrap it up. The whole point of John chapter 5, and hopefully you've gotten this after, you know, two months in John 5. Hopefully you've gotten it. The whole point of John 5 has been to prove the divinity of Jesus Christ. And guys, that is a truth that most Americans, I think, and pretty much all churchgoers already believe. Although, it's not a sure thing. I just read about the United Church of Canada just yesterday, and they have a woman in one of their churches that is a pastor, and she has come out and declared herself to be an atheist. And so the church was thrown a little bit of a tizzy, and they met, and they said, ah, she can stay as a pastor. She's so an atheist running a Christian church, right? Okay, crazy times. But I think for the most part, most Americans still believe Jesus 
is the Son of God, Savior of the world. Um, I think hopefully all church goers in America believe that. Look, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. That's the atheist position, right? The atheist, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But guys, there is an even greater fool than that. And that's the person who believes they do, who says they do believe in the God of the Bible and in his son Jesus Christ, but then lives as if he is not real. And more to the point, who lives contrary to what he has said in his word, thinking they will never have to stand before him and give an account of how they have lived their life on the earth. That is the great lie of Satan. You can live any way you want as long as your tr- it's your truth. Your truth is your truth. God isn't going to judge you for living an authentic life. You know, faithful to who you are. Well, he tells us who we are. You're sinners. All of you. But I love sinners. That's a good, the good news. I love sinners, God says. Said my son that you wouldn't have to die in your sins. You could come to heaven someday with me forever. Um, Jesus declared, and I promise I'm done. Jesus declared to these religious men that he was God in human form. Not to gloat that someday they were going to stand before him. They're judging him right now. Someday he's going to judge them. He wasn't gloating about that. He did talk about it, right? It wasn't about how much he looked forward to sending these men to hell then. It was all about how much he wanted to keep them from going to hell at that moment. He said in verse 34, I do not need anyone to test, no man to testify of me, but I say these things to you that you may be what? Saved. That's why he came. He came to save sinners. Pharisees, scribes, they were sinners, just like the rest of us. Jesus came to save sinners. And aren't you glad that that's the whole point Jesus was getting at? That in the Garden of Eden, when Adam blew it, he blew it for all of us. We were all doomed to spend eternity in hell. And no man could redeem us because every sinner, person born of Adam was a sinner. But God so loved the world that he became one of us. Because only God could have died for our sins. That's the message. That's the gospel. God so loved us. Not that he so hated us, he couldn't wait to judge us. He so loved us, he became one of us to die in our place that we might have everlasting life. That's a message that we as Christians need to get out. Because Satan has convinced the world that God is just a meanie. He's just a terrible God. God of the Bible, that's why you can't, don't believe in him. There's all kinds of other gods you can believe in. Don't believe in the God of the Bible. He's just mean, cruel, vindictive. No, he's not. He's kind and merciful and loving. And that's the whole point of John 5. So we will continue, God willing, next week in John 6. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. That we were dead in trespasses and sins, and yet you sent your Son to die in our place, the innocent for the guilty. Lord, thank you. We just pray that you would give us grace to understand these truths, walk in them, share them, to be a light in the darkness, Lord. That we would be those who proclaim your great love for mankind. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.